This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this special bonus episode, we're commemorating five years in podcasting. It's hard to believe, but I launched Once Upon a Crime on June 9th, 2016, releasing the first three episodes, or the first series, Lost and Found, on the same day. The next month, I released four more episodes and the series Killer Kids. At the end of that month, Justin Evans from Generation Y mentioned my episode on their podcast. At that point, thousands more listeners discovered Once Upon a Crime because of his generosity, and the rest is history. I continued releasing episodes every week and soon had to quit my day job as a counselor to become a full-time podcaster. I am so grateful to be able to share my true crime stories as my full-time job. In fact, it almost doesn't feel like a job at all sometimes. Even though it takes many hours each week to produce each episode, I've really never had more fun. Last month, I concluded Season 5 of the podcast, and next week, I'll start a new series to begin Season 6. But before I do, I decided to take a moment to reflect on all I've learned during five years as a true crime podcaster. So I'll be sharing the top five surprising true crime facts that I've discovered after five years of immersing myself in all things true crime. I'll also be bringing you, our listeners, into the celebration by telling you how you can score some five-year anniversary prizes. I'll be giving away some OUAC swag, shout-outs on the show, and other cool prizes just for being a listener of this podcast. I'll tell you how you can join in the giveaway a little later in the show. But first, I'm going to summarize the first five years of Once Upon a Crime by the numbers. Once Upon a Crime was launched on June 9th, 2016. In our first week, 700 listeners downloaded the show. At the end of 30 days, Once Upon a Crime was downloaded over 7,700 times. Then, as I mentioned, Once Upon a Crime was given a shout-out by Generation Y on their episode number 190, which was released on July 24th, 2016. By the end of that week, 82,000 listeners had found the show. By the end of our first season, June 2017, we had released 49 episodes and 12 different series. The most popular episodes were episode number three, The Cleveland Kidnappings, from the Lost and Found series, the very first series. Another very popular episode was episode number eight, Brenda Spencer from the Killer Kids series. And finally, episode number 39, The Case of John List, the Family Annihilator, from the Monstrous Moms and Dastardly Dads series. Once Upon a Crime entered the iTunes charts for the first time in August of Season 1 on the all-time podcast chart, or what we call the big chart, where every genre is listed. It was sandwiched in between number 41, WTF with Mark Marin, and number 43, Real Time with Bill Maher. That's when I felt like Once Upon a Crime had hit the big time. Another major milestone was 1 million downloads, 
And we hit that milestone in less than one year, in March of 2017. Our very first sponsor was The Great Courses Plus, and that happened in May of 2017, which began to put me on my way to becoming a full-time podcaster. Also in March of 2017, Once Upon a Crime was featured in Entertainment Weekly magazine. An article in that magazine highlighted our Fatal Fans episode about the murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer. Since then, other press coverage of the podcast has appeared in the San Jose Mercury News, Marie Claire Magazine, the Journal of Alta California, and Harper's Bazaar Magazine. It has also been mentioned several times on Vulture.com, as well as Uproxx and Bustle Online. Some of my favorite things to do are to meet listeners, and I've had several opportunities with some special events that have occurred. I was asked to appear on Podcast Row at the first ever crime con in Indianapolis, Indiana in June of 2017. Since then, we've been invited to be a featured podcaster in all but one of CrimeCon's conventions, traveling to Nashville as a guest in 2018, to New Orleans in 2019, and participating virtually in November of 2020 for CrimeCon house arrest. I also participated virtually at CrimeCon 2021, held in Austin, Texas, and online just this past weekend. I am now preparing for a trip to Europe to meet UK listeners at CrimeCon UK in London in September. Once Upon a Crime listeners have been amazing. They are some of the most loyal supporters of this show. After getting several requests from listeners, I launched our Patreon account where listeners could support the show by becoming members. That launched in February of 2017, and we reached 100 Patreon members by July of that same year. I started the podcast as an independent venture, just something fun that I thought would be a really cool hobby. But it quickly blew up to be much more than I had bargained for. And so I finally decided that I needed to get some help to continue to produce the show. The first help I ever hired was in January of 2018, after being a one-man band for about 18 months. Lorena Garcia, who is still my assistant and right-hand woman, was my very first helper and is still with me today. On that same month, Once Upon a Crime surpassed 5 million downloads. And about nine months later, on October 1st, it reached the milestone of 15 million downloads. And just last year, in 2020, Once Upon a Crime received a major award. The podcast won the People's Choice Podcast Award for Best Podcast in Society and Culture. We were also previously nominated in 2019 for Digital Hollywood's Podcast Award in the category of Investigative Journalism, True Crime, and Justice. Finally, bringing us up to date, in March of 2021, we released our 200th episode and surpassed over 25 million downloads. In total, Once Upon a Crime has released 216 total episodes, 53 series, and two miniseries, and the podcast is still independently produced. Over five years of podcasting, I've heard from more than a few people who've either begun or were considering launching a true crime podcast. Sometimes they ask me for technical advice, but more often they want to know if I have any words of wisdom or words of advice for them. This usually leads me to reflect on the things I've discovered during my time immersed in the genre of true crime and true crime podcasting. Some of these things I think may surprise my listeners, even the ones who are very immersed themselves in all things true crime. So here are the five most surprising things I've learned during my first five years in the true crime game. 
Surprising fact number one. True crime has become a craze in the last couple of years. After it was discovered that there was a big audience for true crime content, offerings on television, documentaries, podcasts, and even new television networks proliferated. It would appear as if the number of true crime fans or followers has grown exponentially in the last few years. But I have found that this is not really true. I'm more than certain that there has been a large audience for true crime content for decades. It's just now that those who are interested in true crime have recently gone public. In the past, there's always been true crime content, true crime books, a handful of shows like Unsolved Mysteries, Forensic Files, and the like. And they've been around for a very long time and they have very loyal audiences. But you can go even further back and find content that was popular with the public even in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like True Detective Magazine and even comic books based on true crime stories. People have always been fascinated by sensational true crime reporting. You can think as far back as Jack the Ripper, The Black Dahlia, The Zodiac Killer, Son of Sam, etc., I believe it's human nature to be interested in things that we consider outside the norm of so-called polite or civilized society. So once the interest in true crime really became mainstream and people realized that they weren't alone in this interest in these subjects, they began talking and sharing with others about cases that they were following, documentaries they were watching, and podcasts they were listening to about true crime. This led to the media and even Hollywood taking notice, and more true crime content was being produced in all different kinds of forms. I'm sure that there are some people that have just recently discovered this kind of content and now are immersing themselves in it. But there are many, many people out there who tell me that they've been following true crime like I have basically all of their adult lives. Surprising fact number two, true crime podcasts, in my opinion, are the number one reason for the genre's explosion into the mainstream. Like I said, some of us were always looking for true crime content. I was an early podcast listener, and when I look back to try to find podcasts about true crime, there was only a couple of them, even just as recently as 2011 or so. But then in late 2014, the first season of the podcast Serial was released. This podcast, most of you will remember, followed the case and the investigation of the murder of Heyman Lee, and the conviction of Adnan Syed. Serial became a huge phenomenon that not only reached a large mainstream audience, but also introduced podcasts to a larger audience. Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial, was even invited onto Stephen Colbert's show, The Colbert Report, in December of 2014. Right about this time, my plans for launching a true crime podcast of my own was already in the works. I'd been planning the show since about 2013 or 2014, and had begun researching cases to cover and started to get all my audio recording equipment set up in about 2015. Because there was only about 10 episodes of Serial before it ended, I realized that there was this huge audience that was looking for more true crime content. And so I figured this was a good time to launch my true crime podcast, and I did so in 2016. There was actually a handful of other true crime podcasts that launched around the same time I did. Some of these people became friends of mine. Some of the names that you probably know were the podcasts Insight, which later became Crime Lines, also The Vanished, Actual Innocence, Already Gone, True Crime Garage, etc. These all started right about the same time I did, either a little bit before or a little bit after or right at the same time. Audiences for true crime podcasts became larger pretty quickly during this time. 
Then the first CrimeCon, like I mentioned earlier, happened in June of 2017. And the CrimeCon organizers asked podcasters specifically to be a part of this new convention all about true crime. And they formed the first podcast row with many of us new podcasters really excited to take part. Some of the podcasts that were there for the first CrimeCon included some of the originals like Generation Y, as well as Truth and Justice, True Crime Garage, Up and Vanished, the last podcast on the left, Insight, The Trail Went Cold, Missing Maura Murray, and Real Crime Profile. There was also a handful of true crime podcasts that are no longer active, including Beyond the Blood, American Crime Cast, Curiosity Kills, Judge and Jury, and White Wine True Crime. It was podcasters that really promoted the first year of CrimeCon to true crime audiences. Attendees came in droves to meet the podcasters that they listened to every day, and then they found others like them who were also interested in true crime, enough to travel to a crime convention in Indianapolis. Some CrimeCon attendees then discovered true crime podcasts, and listenerships grew, and more true crime podcasts were launched. As true crime podcasts began having some well-known experts in the field, as well as media personalities on their podcasts, the genre continued to become even more popular and noticed by the media. Surprising fact number three, and this was very surprising to me, there's only a percentage of what is reported on true crime cases at the time that they hit the news that is accurate. Now, I'm not a journalist or an investigator, but I've consumed a lot of true crime content for many decades now. Curiosity has always led me to search out even more sources about the cases that I was following, including transcripts, first-person accounts, psychiatric reports, those kinds of things. When I did so, I always found many additional details, and often these contradicted widely published accounts in newspapers, on television news, etc., What I believed is because there's more true crime content out there now and more interest in the subject, this would lead to more accurate reporting. But in fact, I found this to be the opposite. And this is kind of my theory. When a newsworthy true crime item is first reported on, the priority is to get the news out quickly because people are interested to find out what happened. Think about anything like a workplace shooting or a suspected serial killer or some other sensational type case or maybe a celebrity crime, anything that the media believes that the public will be very interested in. They want to get that information out as soon as possible. So the reporting may not be 100% accurate because of that. Now, they may go back later and get more of the details and report it more accurately. But what I see tends to happen is those first reports that come out in the news, come out on the internet, are printed in newspapers, are picked up by all the other news services and repeated. So those first details become the narrative. And then when you put together a true crime case like I do that is already from the past, you can pull a lot of later resources and then check the facts to see what actually was corroborated, what actually was investigated and found to be true, and then put together the true story. For me, that's the most interesting part of this job. And this is something that my listeners tend to tell me is they'll say, I heard about that case, or I knew about that true crime case, or I had followed that true crime case, but you gave details that I had not heard before. And that's exactly it. That is my focus, is to get the true story, like I like to say, put the true in true crime, and get it as accurate as possible, because I believe that real life, what really happens, is the most interesting thing. Like I said, by no means do I consider myself an investigative journalist, but I always try to use the sources of the most reliable and detailed reporting or information that I can find. 
I also do my own research. I recreate timelines. I double check names. I check dates against the timelines that I've created. I compare some reports against court records, police records if available, etc. And this is why the tagline of the podcast is the story behind the story of true crime. Because I feel like we can always get another part of the story that will help us to understand what happened and why. And this is what I strive to do. Surprising fact number four. I found that the motivation behind almost all violent crime that I have researched can fit into one of just a few categories. I'll preface this by saying that I've eliminated crimes that are committed as a result of something like drug addiction leading to a drug-induced psychosis, self-defense or perceived danger, or severe mental illness. So those have been taken out of this theory that I put together. So the first one of these motivations that I found that's pretty common is what we can just label hate. Rage against a person, a group, or an entity. And that hatred could be aimed against several different factors, gender, race, social status, personal history, etc. I'll give you a couple of examples. Serial killers like Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper, David Carpenter can really be boiled down to the hatred of women. All of these men sought out women, and they wasn't merely sexual crimes, which are bad enough, but was a deliberate plan and attempt to do the most harm and most damage to a person solely because they were female. We can also take this and apply it to Eileen Wuornos, which, of course, we can look at her history, which I did in the episode on Eileen Wuornos, but we can also see that she took out her rage on men. So that's the flip side of that coin. And then we can look at some more personal reasons for hate. Ellie Nessler, if you'll remember, was a woman who committed the shooting in the courthouse. And this had to do with revenge for the hatred of the person who had abused her child. Then you can look at other factors that play into this kind of hate or rage. For example, the soccer brawl in Brazil episode that I did, where neighbors were pitted against each other, and it was like a gang-type mentality, but it was based around neighborhood groups as well as sports team rivals. And then, again, another more very personal hatred, we can look at the Betty Broderick case. And this, we know, was a all-intense, passionate hatred against her ex-husband. Number two motivation for violent crime is greed. I've covered several episodes that had to do with people who committed some of the worst crimes because they were motivated by greed. So Dale Ewell, which you remember, was the spoiled son episode who plotted to kill his parents and sister to gain an inheritance. And then just recently, Anjette Lyles, who poisoned her husband's and her child to collect life insurance. Number three motivation that is often seen in violent crime is jealousy. One example of a case that jealousy was the motive was the Texas cadet murder case where Diane Zamora was jealous of a perceived romantic rival and urged her boyfriend to kill the rival so that he could prove that she was the only person in his life. We can also apply the jealousy motivation to the O.J. Simpson case. Many cases where a spouse or romantic partner will kill that romantic partner or a rival. But there's some motivations that are compounded. So I'll give you one example. The Clara Harris murder by Mercedes 
I listed that motivation as hate slash jealousy because she grew to hate her husband after becoming jealous that he was having an affair with another woman. Motivation number four is a little bit more nuanced. I call this ego slash shame. So when somebody has a motivation because their ego has been damaged by either being rejected or something of that nature, and it brings up this feeling of shame that they cannot abide. So that makes them strike out violently against whoever or whatever has made them feel like their ego was diminished or they were shamed. So for example, Wade Ridley, the Match.com murderer, he killed and attempted to kill these women who he felt rejected him after they had dated him for a time. I'll bring up Betty Broderick again. Ego and shame played a part in her case when she felt that she had been thrown over by her husband for another woman. Drew Peterson was convicted of killing his first wife and suspected of killing his second wife, who has still not been found, Stacy Peterson. His wife was going to leave him. He decided that he could not abide losing that control that he had over her life and decides to eliminate her. We also have to look at that narcissism plays a role. If you think about the ego-shame dynamic, it's definitely tied to a narcissistic personality a lot of times because they possess this sense of entitlement and the need for control. These perpetrators' damaged self-esteem often masquerades as self-confidence, bravado. They seem bigger than life. They have these bigger-than-life ego. And when something happens that messes with that ego identity of being this person and now having to face that they're not that person or they can't control everything or they're not in control, then they may take some violent action. Another one that I can put in this category is John List, the family annihilator. He was losing his income. He was not going to be able to um, provide for his family in the way that he was used to. He was a very controlled and controlling person. And when he started to lose that control, in his mind, it was better for him to eliminate the people who he would have to face in shame because he could no longer live up to that idea of himself. So he decided to eliminate them. Instead of living in the reality, things were not going well financially and in his career. And then number five, because there's quite a few that don't fit neatly into a category, but I kind of collected all of them. And I realized that these people commit these crimes for basically pure self-interest, lack of remorse, and no concern for others. And of course, that would be what we'd call a sociopath. So the commission of the crime is either, one, as a means to get their own selfish needs and wants met without regard to the kind of harm it was doing to other people, without regard to other people's lives, without regard to anybody or anything else. So example, Diane Downs and Susan Smith both harmed or killed their own children in an effort to hold on to a boyfriend, which is one of those selfish needs. Scott Peterson, to get out of his commitment to a wife and a coming child, decided to take matters into his own hands and eliminate said wife and child. The other thing you can look at as far as sociopaths is that the crime itself is the motivation. The selfish need is not something external to them, like a boyfriend or money or position. The crime itself is the reward 
for them. So we're talking about like serial killers, serial rapists, etc. For example, Carrie Stainer, the Yosemite murders. The Briley brothers just loved violence for the sake of violence. It wasn't for any other purpose except to be violent. And also Richard Ramirez. He would take some things, he would steal some things, but that was not the main purpose of his crimes. The killing itself was the motivation. And that is pure sociopath. There are some combination of of those five, hate, greed, jealousy, ego or shame, and uh, sociopathy. There are combinations between those two because sometimes it will kind of blend. Hate slash jealousy, ego slash self-interest, that would be a sociopath, but there's also this ego gratification. Hate slash self-interest, also sociopath. So that kind of plays into that type of motivation. Let's move on to the last surprising fact number five. And this is something that came up because of everything that happened in the past year as far as how lives changed when the pandemic hit. It just pretty much changed everybody's life, if not completely, then at least partially. And so thinking about this on a more global scale, when times are good, when times are bad, what changes, what stays the same? Well, surprising fact number five for me was that whether in good times or bad, people seem to always remain interested in tragic true crime stories. So what I observed during the pandemic was that there was not much change as far as the audience size for true crime content. Not only that, but interest in true crime stories actually grew in most media outlets over the past year. Not only in podcasts, but also television series that came out, Documentaries proliferated on a lot of streaming services. Networks were cranking out even more shows, documentaries, movies based on true crimes. And many older true crime cases are being rehashed on new movies and shows about these older cases. So here's the titles of a few that are out now or are coming out soon. Son of Sam, Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, and John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. And there's many more of these coming out every month, almost every week. There are new offerings for these older cases. It is surprising because I think a lot of people would assume that when times are bad or we're going through something that's more challenging, that we're not going to want to immerse ourselves in things that can be identified as negative or scary or dark or depressing. But you don't see that. I think Like anything else, whether it's, and of course, these are not all the same things, but if you just think about different genres like sports or like comedy or dramas, it's normally things that people view that takes them outside of their own lives. We're not professional athletes, most of us. (laughs) So we enjoy watching professional athletes compete in sports games because it's something that's outside of us. Or we like to watch home renovation shows when we don't know how to hammer a nail. Or we like to watch cooking shows when we are not good cooks. It's something outside of our own lives that is interesting to see other people doing these things or finding out about how these things work or just observing. True crime, of course, is different, but how much outside of our own realm of understanding can we go 
when you're talking about things like serial killers or you're talking about violent crime, most of us, thankfully, don't have a lot of experience dealing with something of that nature. We're curious. Why does this happen? Who does this happen to? How can I avoid having this happen to me? What do I need to know about this kind of predator or this kind of crime? There's lots of reasons why people are interested in this kind of content. And I think the number one, if you just make a general observation, it's because it's something that we're thankfully not faced with every day, something that's outside of our own experience that is a curiosity to us. I remember as early as two years ago, it was being said that the genre of true crime was oversaturated and its popularity would soon be a thing of the past. This is when things first started blowing up in the true crime world and all of these things started coming out and everybody was talking about all these true crime offerings. I do agree that it can't continue to grow at the same pace it is now because it's so much, right? And there's only so many true crime rehashes that you can do before people lose interest because they've seen this before. They, they've heard this story before. I already hear people saying that they do not want another Ted Bundy movie or documentary. But I hate to tell you, the interest in Ted Bundy will remain. It has been since the 1980s and it continues to today. And things like serial killers, no matter how much we think it's oversaturated and has been covered and we're sick of them, there will be new people that come up that say, oh, I didn't know about that case or I want to know more. So that's not going away. But you don't have to watch it, and neither do I, <laughs> unless you really want to, right? You don't have to watch it. And those who wanted to jump on this true crime bandwagon just for fun when it first started will probably drop off. And I believe many already have. But then there are some of us, and I'll, of course, include myself in this so you don't feel alone, that have had a lifelong interest in true crime cases for whatever reason that is. Everybody has their own reason either because they're armchair detectives or there are some who are interested in advocating for victims who maybe are in marginalized populations who really didn't receive the coverage that others have. And there are others that will continue to have interest in these cases because they're simply fascinated by law and crime or the psychology of crime like I am or other aspects of these cases. And these viewers and listeners and followers of True Crime will remain. And maybe they themselves will spur the media to produce more content that is thoughtful, interesting, and respectful of victims. But I can almost guarantee that there will always be those who are endlessly fascinated in true crime cases. As we wrap up here, it's giveaway time. As a podcaster, I've found that it's a challenge to connect with my listeners, so I almost never get to meet them in person except at true crime events like CrimeCon or periodic meetups that have been uh, basically on hold for the last year. So I'm always looking for, and many of us podcasters are always looking for ways to continue the conversation with listeners outside of the podcast. So we here at Once Upon a Crime found a new tool that we're pretty excited about that will allow us to communicate with you more often and in real time. You can now receive and send texts to Once Upon a Crime. You now have the option to choose to be notified by text for things like upcoming podcast events or to be the first to know as new episodes are released. You can also be notified about merchandise discounts, giveaways, and much more. You can even send me texts with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi. To get started, text OUAC, that's the letters OUAC, to 408-676-1770. That's 408-676-1770. 
to opt in for text messages and to choose what types of texts you'd like to receive. You'll then receive a text to be entered into a drawing if you choose. Winners will be announced on the June 21st episode and will also be notified by text. You can opt out of text messaging at any time. Text messaging for Once Upon a Crime is provided by Text Sanity. Our first series of Season 6 begins next week on June 14th. Make sure to follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I can't thank you enough for being a listener of Once Upon a Crime and helping me to celebrate the podcast's five-year anniversary. I really can't believe that we've already hit this milestone. Time has gone by so fast, and I've had a great time sharing my true crime stories with you. I hope to see some of you on September 25th and 26th in London for CrimeCon UK. Tickets are going fast, so if you haven't secured yours yet, make sure you do so as soon as possible. You can use my promo code ONCEUPON21 to get 10% off, and I'll see you in London. I'm looking forward to many, many more years of sharing true crime stories with you and meeting you in person, too. CrimeCon 2022 is being held in Las Vegas, Nevada, April 29th through May 1st of next year, and I'm hoping to be asked back to Podcast Row then and connect with all of you who plan to attend. Once again, I just want to express my gratitude to all of you who have supported the show by patronizing our sponsors, becoming Patreon members, or just listening and telling a friend. You guys rock, and I can't thank you enough. Until next time, be good to one another. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.